Hello, and welcome to Ditching Hourly. I'm Jonathan Stark. Today, I'm joined by a very special guest, Ron Baker. Ron started his CPA career in 1984 with KPMG's Private Business Advisory Services in San Francisco. Today, he's the founder of Verisage Institute, the leading think tank dedicated to educating professionals internationally, and a radio talk show host on the Voice of America Network with his show, The Soul of Enterprise, Business in the Knowledge Economy. Ron has authored seven best-selling books, including The Firm of the Future, Pricing on Purpose, Measure What Matters to Customers, and Implementing Value Pricing. Ron has toured the world, spreading his value pricing message to over 210,000 professionals. He's been named on Accounting Today's 2001 through 2007 and 2011-2018 Top 100 Most Influential People in the Profession. And he's been inducted into the CPA Practice Advisor Hall of Fame, uh, and that was in 2018. He's a faculty member of the Professional Pricing Society, and he presently resides in Petaluma, California. Ron, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jonathan. Thrilled to be back. Yes, now your first time uh, on this roller coaster, so to speak. (laughs) (laughs) Not my first rodeo, as you say, in Texas, yeah. (laughs) Exactly. Well, great to have you back. And you're here to drop a bomb, which I'm very excited. I I honestly don't know uh, what to expect, but I know it's going to be good and probably funny. (laughs) <laughs> hopefully a little scary too <laughs> okay well sure let me let me let me drop the bomb and we can go from there but if you roll this back to 1919 when when hourly billing started and this is literally the 100th anniversary isn't that exciting uh <laughs> as if the world hasn't changed in the past hundred years hourly billing prices the inputs and then of course we moved to fixed pricing i would say was kind of an intermediate step And that was basically pricing the outputs, a specific scope of work. Now, it still might have been based on estimating hours in advance or whatever. And then we moved to value pricing, something you and I have been very passionate about teaching. And I call it value pricing 1.0 for purposes of this, which is where you price the customer. Mm -hmm. And I believe that you price a transformation. I think in value pricing 1.0, the customer is the product. We're, we're transforming the customer. We're not selling services. We're transforming the customer. It's deep, it's individualized, it's personalized. And it's a transformation as Joe Pine, you know, was, who I know was recently on your show. We've had him on our show and I read his book back in 97 and it, I still think it's as relevant today as it was then his hierarchy of value and transformation is at the top of that. Yeah, I totally agree. But Jonathan, I think we're now in value pricing 2.0 and this isn't just theorizing. This is a hard macroeconomic trend. I mean, a hard trend. I can look out the window and I can see it every day. Hmm. And that is the, it's basically the subscription business model. Now I've tweaked it a bit for professional firms. I think the model is concierge medicine. And one of the reasons I think I reached out to you is because I heard you say that you have now a concierge doctor. Correct. And I've been doing a deep dive on concierge medicine and reading books and other white papers and research reports on the doctors who have made the transition. And I think in this model, and I don't know what to call it yet. So I'm in new territory here, just like everybody else feeling my way around, but I'm just going to use concierge practice as a, as a placeholder. What makes this different, and this is big, is you price the relationship and the portfolio. And that's different. 
So let's define some terms because there, I think a lot of ways I could interpret that. So when you say price the relationship and price the portfolio, can you break that down? Yes. And to do that, I have to give you specific examples. So let me give you one because there are different types of subscription business models, as you can imagine. Sure. Well, I'll give you two of my favorite. Porsche Passport has got a program that started in Atlanta, Georgia. Now it's expanded into other cities. And I think it's going to expand rapidly. Uh, there's there's two options, which I think is a pricing flaw, but we could, we could deal with that later. <laughs> one is two grand a month and one is three grand a month. And depending on which program you pick, you're eligible to drive different models within those pricing tiers. I think there's six or eight, maybe 10 models in each tier. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure of that, but it's something like that. There's multiple models in each tier. And it's not a lease because you're subscribing to it. You're paying this monthly and they pay for everything except your gas, everything, insurance, everything. Maintenance, if you need maintenance, just send white glove out, pick it up, drop off another one. Um, registration, taxes, all of that kind of stuff. And people say, well, what's what's different? How is this different from a lease? Because it's not tied to a car. You're not subscribing to a car. You're subscribing to Porsche. Mm. And the reason I think, this is brilliant marketing, the reason they call it the passport program is because the customers refer to themselves as citizens of Porsche. Now, would you rather have somebody buy your services or would you rather have somebody subscribe to your firm? So that's what I mean by the relationship. You're creating a lifetime relationship with these customers as any business wants, even professionals. I mean, this scares like divorce attorneys <laughs> and I guess it scares undertakers, although they, they do want repeat business from the family and relatives. Uh, but and here's, here's the time bomb with this Porsche Passport program. 80% of the subscribers to this program are new to the brand. That is shocking. Now, when you think of how much money a car company spends, especially a luxury car company spends on getting you to buy another one, most of, most of their advertising is not targeted to new drivers. It's targeted to have you buy another BMW, Porsche, Mercedes, whatever. Mm -hmm. That's 80 probably percent of their marketing. I mean, this is why BMW has a customer experience officer and they can do it just because they're looking at the relationship and this 80%, what do, what do you think they're going to be driving for the rest of their life? <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Yeah. Cause the experience of having a no worry, it's like a no lock. Well, it's like Netflix. It's kind of like Netflix for cars in a way. But there's, yep. there's something different happening there. Totally different. And by the way, analysts think that 50% of cars will be subscribed to by 2023. Every major automobile company either already has a subscription program mm -hmm. or has plans to put one in place. The only one I know of that's backtracked has been Cadillac. They started it. They found it was too costly. Porsche, on the other hand, has expanded it. They've moved from Atlanta. Now they're in, I think, San Diego and Phoenix and Vegas. And of all places, don't ask me why, Toronto. 
<laughs> not, not the greatest place to drive around in a convertible, but, um, but you know, and let me just read you a customer, uh, a random customer review on Porsche Passport's website. Mm-hmm. The name perfectly describes how it feels to be a member, a citizen of Porsche enthusiasts, given the opportunity to drive many miles in many models. The Porsche Passport service really sets this apart from any other brand I've been loyal to. Now, do we get reviews like this? Probably almost nobody does. So the Porsche one in particular is an example of the power of a brand. So the differentiation between, let's just say Porsche and BMW. Like you're going to, the, the, a certain person is going to identify with one of those and want to be a citizen of that. So where your, your kind of personal ideology or your personal uh, view, it's like, what is it? Like it's, you just, you just want to be that you want, it's almost like the kind of person who would put a Porsche tattoo on their arm. Yep. Harley Davidson. Yeah. Like, Har- yeah. Harley seems like a perfect fit for something no, like nobody's this. Nobody's got a BMW tattoo on their arm from what I've seen uh, mo- among motorcycle riders. I've never seen, right. I've never, I've never seen a BMW tattoo of any kind. Yep. I'm sure they are out there, but, but Harley tattoos is a common thing because they've created a, a community or a tribe, as Seth Godin would say, or like a, you know, a, an in-group. A cult. Of out. Yeah, a cult is another <laughs> way to put it. Right. So, all right. So let me poke some holes in this and then you can tell me why I'm wrong. Okay. Um, how's this not a loyalty program? It is a loyalty program. Okay. <laughs> but it's, but it's based on a subscription pricing model. Mm-hmm. And it, what's great about it is it's not a lease. It's, I mean, you can drive unlimited miles. You can switch out as many cars as you want. You know, Hey, I need an SUV this weekend. I'm taking guests are coming in. I'm taking them wine tasting and they'll just drive one out. Yeah. You're subscribing to Porsche. You know, if I could, I'd subscribe to Apple. You're subscribing to your concierge doctor. That's a loyalty program. That's what I mean by the relationship. Yeah. My wife subscribed to her uh, iPhone. Essentially. Mm -hmm. She's got that upgrade plan. Right. Ed class got that too. Yep. And it's, it's more expensive, like hands down. Absolutely. You, you know, it is, but it, it it's, you're buying something different. You're not buying the phone. You're buying the, the not worrying about not having the old phone. Well, to put it in, in <laughs> uh, Michael Munger's term, he wrote this great book tomorrow 3.0. He's an economist at Duke university. What, what all of these things are doing, Uber, Amazon, prime, Netflix, they're, Entrepreneurs are figuring out a way to lower transaction costs. And like you said, it simplifies everything. This is a simplifier model, right? I don't have to deal with any of the hassles of owning a car. I don't want to own anything, right? I mean, if I could, and this is something that uh, Teen Zoe from, who's the founder of Subscribed, or I'm sorry, Zorro, the the, um, software company that handles the subscription business model, does all the back office stuff. Hmm. And He's also the author of the book Subscribed, which is a fantastic book, by the way. We had him on our show. So we have a show in the archives with, with Teen. It's out of San Francisco. And he says in the book, in five years, you won't buy anything but to subscribe to everything. Now, I don't buy that, Jonathan. I, I could sit here and poke holes in that all day. Sure. But what I do buy is in five years, you'll have the option of subscribing to nearly everything. Mm-hmm. And every business will have to deal with that fact. Right. And if you don't, because what you're doing when you subscribe, what you're doing with your concierge doctor is you're lowering 
transaction costs. It's just hassle-free. You can telemedicine with them. You can send them pictures. You can email them. You can text them for crying out loud. Yeah. That's not going to happen in a traditional medical practice because the insurance companies don't reimburse for any of that. Right. They only reimburse for face-to-face visits. That's it. Mm-hmm. Okay. So th- this is, I mean, you can see this trend happening in, you know, subscribing to dinner, right? Blue Apron or, um, uh, you know what? There's all these foods. There's clothing ones. There are, uh, do, do any have any yeah. watch brands done this? Because like the ones that I've seen so far are kind of like aggregators, where they're not the brand. They just have collected. You know, like you could. There there are watch subscription luxury watch subscription packages where you get like a new watch every month, but it's not a. It's not like a Rolex. It's a different. You know, it could be all different ones. Right. Right. I- I haven't seen that for watches, but I, I, I'm sure there is. I mean, there's underwear for crying out loud. Somebody just sent me one on underwear, uh, socks. There's you know wine in the box, fruit of the month, beer of the month. There's even uh, what is it? Dog bark. Um, it, it, it treats for your dog on a monthly subscription. <laughs> I thought it was rent a dog, <laughs> rent a different dog every month. <laughs> so yeah, it's it's a hard trend. I mean, if you just if you if you just want to look at this on a macro basis, let me just give you two statistics. Subscription e-commerce market, and this is from McKinsey, subscription e-commerce market has grown by more than 100% a year for the past five years. Subscription-based companies are growing eight times faster than the S&P 500, 17.6% versus 2.2%, and five times faster than U.S. retail sales, 17.6 versus 3.6%. You can think about you know Harry's Razor, the Dollar Shave Club. Yeah. Uh, you can think about uh, Google just buying Fitbit, right? And they paid two point one million uh, billion dollars for Fitbit, and and they basically what did they get? They got something like eighteen million or twenty eight million active users, even though Fitbit has sold something like over a hundred million watches. Mm. But as Teen Zo points out in his newsletter. He said, yeah, the technology, Google doesn't care about their technology. They have a ton of technology. They're buying active users. Right. And and for 75 bucks a pop, by the way, and, and you mentioned Blue Apron. He, he points out Blue Apron spends $400 to attract an active user. Mm. So Google got a great deal. Right. And so for a professional practice that is just sitting there selling services and doesn't have a group of active users of citizens, of members, of tribes, people, whatever you want to call them, mm-hmm. what's its value? Yeah. Okay. So I'm glad you, you, before we jump into that, because I want to talk about how this relates to professional services firms. Um, but have you read uh, The Inevitable by Kevin Kelly? Yes. Yes. Yeah. And there's a whole bunch of this in that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It, it's much more technology focused, but it's basically like, you're not even going to own your own clothes. You know, right. it's just going to be, you're going to subscribe to your clothes and, you know, in the fast, fa- fast fashion trend seems like an obvious precursor to that. And there's also a huge uptick in the, the purchase of thrift clothes because people are like, it's just the mentality, you know, like the sort of older generation, like my parents age or, you know, whatever, I'm 50. So the kind of uh, uh, boomer generation is, um, and even mine, the older Gen Xers are like, you know, like you're not going to own your records. Now, you're not going to own your books and, and, you know, five years ago, but now that seems comical. It's comical to own your own, like, you know, like have a record or a CD or a taper or even have a digital download of um, any music or a movie. It's silly. I mean, I know there are holdouts, but 
you know, if you, and, but the, the thing that I'm pointing out is probably just get, I'm, I feel, it feels like five years ago, it seemed absurd to subscribe to your music. And that, that mental shift has just totally flipped that it for, it seems to me, you know, this is just, um, anecdata, but it seems to me like in my life, the people around me who were completely would laugh at something like Netflix five years ago are now that's all they have. Yeah. Um, I'm sitting here looking at a wall of hardcover books and in my office here, I don't know, maybe 1200. Mm -hmm. But now I'm an act, I've been an active Kindle user for, I don't know, seems like 10 years. I haven't gone into a bookstore in forever. Right. You don't own your Kindle books. It's a license. I mean, if Amazon goes away, I'm screwed. <laughs> I mean, Microsoft books went away, but they, they actually gave people refunds, I believe. Huh. Yeah. I mean, it does. When you, when you look around, I mean, I'm old enough to remember lugging thousands of albums from one apartment to another apartment. It's, I, I don't miss that. I don't think. I, <laughs> yeah, no kidding. I, I never, this is why I don't move. These mm-hmm. <laughs> books are a pain. But Jonathan, I know you play the guitar. Correct. When we teach this, we, Ed Kless and I taught the subscription business model and we did a two day workshop. So we have time to do exercises. And one of the exercises is why would you subscribe to a roof, a refrigerator, a drill, a guitar? Hmm. And there is a company and forgive me, I'm blanking on their name. I I don't know if it's Gibson. It's not Gibson. It's somebody else. But he basically, you can subscribe to a guitar from this outfit but but he's he's bundled it with all like online education because what he found was people go into a music store all excited they want to learn how to play they buy a guitar and they give up then they'll never be a customer again he has now an a vested interest in your success playing the guitar and so that's what i mean by the relationship there's a lot of things that go into that but it is pricing the relationship not the customer and that's a subtle difference, but it's big, actually. It's important, right? Because if you, if, you know, back in the day when I would go in and like have my paper route money and go and try and buy my first electric guitar, you know, Al Trombetti was like, ah, sucker, here you go. <laughs> have fun with that. You know, but if you, right, it's a huge difference. If, right. if he was like, all right, son, that's not the right guitar for you. You should get this one. It comes with lessons to it like you said i'll be buying strings and guitars from that guy for the rest of my life if i mean i ended up sticking with it but how many people actually stick with it you know i'm sure it's a very small percentage so that's a huge difference and it's it's like for the for the seller it feels like a small mind shift difference not like a huge mind shift difference you know what's interesting about these subscription models and this might even push against joe pine's transformation i i I still think you could consider this a transformation so it fits but Mm -hmm. um the, the businesses that have a subscription model have customer success units. It's no longer about the customer experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, of course you want a great customer experience and you want great service. That That's kind of be, going to become, I think, a table stake. Yeah. What you want to make sure is your customer succeeds. Right. Right. They have a Fitbit. You want them to be healthier. If they have a concierge doctor, you want it to prevent problems, less hospitalizations, less diseases, maybe less medication. By the way, all that's happening in, in, uh, with people that go to concierge practices and pharmaceutical companies have noticed it <laughs> that, Hey, these patients of these concierge doctors are taking less of our pills. That's yeah, they're healthier. They're, <laughs> they're healthier. That's right. And, and that, I mean, this is, this is a hard macro trend. This isn't theory. This isn't theory. Do you think it's generational? 
Do you think it's a, do you think that like younger generations are going to be more, it seems like there's a trend where ownership is, is viewed as wasteful and raises all kinds of privacy concerns. There's like, this is very complicated. It, it is. And I don't, you know, I'm one of those that kind of hates the whole Gen X, Z, Y, I, you know, mm-hmm. I, I look, we're humans, you know, and one generation has been complaining about the other generation forever. So I, there's nothing new there. Right. Um, and I'm not sure that that these younger generations, the millennials or whatever, um, don't want to own things. I mean, there's a great there's a there's the millennial monopoly version. I don't know if you've seen this, but mm-hmm. it, it's a riot because right on the box it says there's no real estate in this game because millennials can't afford it anyway. It's it's it's, it's hilarious. Um, but I, you know, I maybe it's just because millennials are too burdened with debt to, to be able to afford a home or a car. I'm, I'm not sure we're not as acquisitive as ever, but what I do think is the transaction costs, which, which, are, which is what the price is to a customer. It's not just the price they pay. It's everything else that comes with owning that product or service. Right. And so when you think about why would you subscribe to a roof or a refrigerator well, because I wouldn't have to fix it. There was a problem with it. They could just come out and give me a new one. Um, my roof might have solar panels on it. So those are going to go bad at some point and they could just come out and replace it. So yeah, I would want to subscribe to some of these things just because it's less hassle. Yeah, that's, uh, that's true. I can't, I can't not mention Corey Doctorow's angle on this, which is what if you fall behind on the payments and someone comes and repossesses your roof? So, you know, there, there are, issues here you know and he yeah, gets well, into that like could happen well, with your house if you fall behind on your mortgage yes that's true um he also talks about it with like prosthetic limbs and stuff like your legs automatically walk you to the payment center <laughs> like, i mean you know he's a sci-fi guy but <laughs> right, there right. Are all, all sorts of interesting things happen here but and i could geek out about this literally all day with you but i do want to make it practical for That'd the listener fun. yes so <laughs> let's switch over for a second to professional services firms specifically, and, uh, you know, from your world, what could a CPA do to transform their practice into to something where they're pricing the relationship? You know, they're selling in a subscription model and people would get tattoos of the CPA firm on their arm. They'd be a citizen of that firm. Right. And, and, and I didn't get to, we only dealt with the one part of what you're pricing, the relationship. You're also pricing the portfolio. Oh yeah, yeah, and, you're right. And, yeah. And, and what that means is there's an enormous insurance component in this because it's an actuarial form of pricing. My vision for CPAs, bookkeeping firms, and you know, you're going to have to help me think through this for your field. Sure. Um, but is, Hey, anything we can do under our roof, you're covered. The IRS audits you, you're covered. You need a personal financial statement because you're trying to buy your dream home or piece of property to build your dream home. You're covered. We're just going to charge you X amount per year, probably paid monthly. And whatever we can do, you need your books done. You need your audit. You need your tax return. You get audited, um, you know, anything. Now we can wrap advisory services around that. We can have different tiers. I'd still, I'd still want to offer options just like Netflix does, right? Uh, but we'll cover it because I know Jonathan that maybe only 2% of my customers are going to get audited, mm-hmm. right? I'm, I'm pricing the portfolio. So I'm, I'm self-insuring on some of these things and I'm not focused on the services. I'm not focused on a scope of work. I don't want to sell services. I want to be, I don't want to be a fireman. 
want to be a fire insurance salesman because the psychology behind insurance is, first off, it's a huge industry. It's $3.3 trillion worldwide. We all pay for it. We all love it when we don't use it. That's what I want to sell. Okay. So what are the objections that you get when people, when people are exposed to this idea? <laughs> well, how would we know what they're going to use? Are you, are you golf? Oh, exactly. How do we not go out of business? We're going to go bankrupt. Everyone's going to call us every day. It's like, no, I don't want to talk to my lawyer every day. I don't want to talk to my doctor every day, but when I do want to talk to them, I want them to pick up the phone, give me a quick answer and send me on my way. You made a point on your show and that's what really lit the fire for me to, to contact you because I thought it was a really great point because it, it just resonates with everything I've been reading about these doctors that have made the transition. You said, I look at my watch. I've been here for three hours. Yeah, I got to get out of here. I can, right. Who says that in a doctor's office other than, you know, you're sitting in the waiting room for three hours. Right. Right. I, I could stay there all day if he, he is clearly, he's got plenty of time. And he's not selling it, so he doesn't care. And he's got plenty of time to be a true professional. And David Maester defines that as a technician who cares. And he's got plenty of time to keep you healthy, to prevent things, to guide you with weight, nutrition, whatever, whatever you know his practice does. And, and there's a lot of different practices now and a lot of even specialists going into this. But they have the time, I mean, because their panel of patients is so much fewer, you know, the average say family practitioner has a panel of patients between two and 4,000 people, uh, patients. And uh, the premium concierge doctors only has two or 400. Now, the most premium have 50, but those are catering to like the CEOs, of public companies and other you know, really wealthy individuals. The guy who started uh, concierge medicine up in Seattle, MD squared, Dr. Uh, sorry, I'm blanking on his name, Moran, Haran. Um, he was a, he was a doctor for the Seattle Sonics. He was the team doctor. That's what gave him the idea. He says, I got to know my players so well. I knew everything about them so I could keep them healthy. I knew when they you know, had an issue on the, on the court or whatever, I could, I, I knew what to do with them. And that's, that's what he wanted to bring to his practice. And doctors that have, you know, two or 4,000 patients are seeing 20 or 30 per day. They're spending, you know, less than 15 minutes with them. And they just, they, they can't get that deep dive. This is not, this isn't even, to me, this isn't even a business model issue. This is why I got into medicine in the first place to help people. This is why I became a CPA to help people. This is why I became a programmer or, or a marketing person in an ad agency to help businesses. You can't do that if you're too busy. You've got, you know, that's the big problem with a lot of firms. They're too busy. They have too many customers. And that gets major pushback because I've never been a growth for the sake of growth guy. I think growth for the sake of growth is the ideology of the cancer cell, not a profitable, sustainable business. I mean, Porsche and BMW are the two most profitable car companies in the world, bar none. I mean, nobody's even close. And their market shares are rounding errors to Toyota and GM and everybody else. I mean, it's, and I don't know if you'd call this a lifestyle practice. I, I don't think it's just about lifestyle. I think this is why people became professionals in the first place, to have that deep relationship, to know everything. And why can't we just do whatever it takes? Now, now in a, let, me, let me just, I'll say one more thing about how I envision this for like a CPA firm, because that's the world I kind of live in and grew up in. You'd have fewer clients or fewer customers 
and your prices would probably be five or 10 times higher. It, it, so unpack that a little bit. What do you mean five or 10 times higher? I mean, how can you even apples to apples it? Five or 10 times higher than your, say your median right now. I mean, first off, you'd have to analyze your customer base and, and try and figure out, you know, this goes back to strategy positioning and your purpose, right? What, what mm-hmm. kind of customers do you want? You want, I think this is much easier to do if you're specialized, by the way. Oh, yeah. So we can talk more about that. But I mean, if, if I look, I, I, I've had conversations with people because I freaked them out about this. And, and I say, okay, let's analyze your practice. Let's look at your smallest customer and let's look at your biggest customer in terms of revenue. Now, the smaller the firm, the tighter that range, right? If you have a bookkeeper, you might, you, you might have, you know, the small end might be 500 bucks a year or whatever. Um, and, and their biggest customer might be $12,000 per year. Well, they're going to have to make a decision what kind of customer they want to serve in the future. And my guess is probably not going to be at the $500 level. Now it could be, some of them do like working with the smaller ones and then they, you know, they're going to have to lop off the big ones, but they're going to have to make a decision about that and then probably charge that $500 person more like four or five grand a year. And that freaks a lot of people out. Oh, my customers will never pay that, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. No, they would pay it because, and, and here's a nugget. <laughs> it's easier to differentiate your firm at a higher price than a lower price. Yeah. I mean, that's obvious to me, but I've said, yeah, like it's obvious to everyone. I mean, if you have a higher, if, if you are charging more, you can actually change, you can change what you do. You can change what you offer. It gives you so much more wiggle room and latitude to, to actually be different because you're not operating under razor thin margins like everybody else. You can spend three hours with a patient in your yeah, doctor's office. Exactly. You can be different. Right. Yep. I mean, that's it. That's that's what I mean by the relationship, but also the portfolio. And like you said, not everybody's gonna call you and camp out in your office and all of that. <laughs> in fact, I've got statistics on this about how often people uh, call their concierge doctors during during the week, what time of day during the week, and what time of day during the weekends and, and mm. at nights. Eighty-two percent happen. With no, in, within normal business hours. And I'll tell you what, when the four, 2%, whatever it is that call you at 2 a.m. on a Saturday or Sunday night, mm-hmm. you want to hear from them because right. something's going on that's really bad probably. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's just, just one piece of data, but I've gone into, I've gone in for an unscheduled visit once in 10 years and it was during business hours. Uh, wow. It's like, yeah, annual physical, that's it. I've emailed, emailed a couple of times, you know, whatever I've, I've even been like, I use them so infrequently that I've almost been like, you know, my kid's got a rash. Can you take a look at it? <laughs> Send him a picture. I never have done that, but and that's the portfolio. That's the portfolio. You don't use them. I, I've talked to so many doctors about this and, and especially the specialists who say 5% of my patients draw on 60 or 70% of my practices resources. Now, those are the chronic people that have, you know, diabetes or serious health issues. Now, in a concierge practice, it's possible to get some of those folks, not all of them, but some of them probably healthier to a healthier state. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that, that's exactly what I mean by a portfolio is you're not using them. You know, a good chunk of their patients are just paying it and they're just thrilled to pay it and not use it because they know it's there if they need it. People will roll, roll their eyes at the concept of peace of mind, but but I, but I have it and I love it. And the idea that if anything did come up, I wouldn't be thrown into this sort of, you know, medical industrial complex situation. I'd actually have an expert who 
you know, the one time that I did go in off schedule, oh man, I mean, that was worth every penny I've paid over 10 years. That the peace of mind is very real. It's kind of like, um, it's kind of like insurance, but it's, it's more than that. It is. I, I was just, the insurance component is just, you're kind of self-insuring the portfolio that, Hey, not everybody's going to use it at the same rate. Just like not everybody's going to die or have an earthquake, you know, the same year. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, there's an actuarial component to that portfolio. And so, and to translate that to English for software developers, <laughs> um, correct me if I'm wrong, but what you're saying is that of the, the group of customers that you have, your overall customer group, certain ones are not going to use it all and they're going to be perfectly happy with that and and you need to kind of balance out your portfolio to as the seller to uh, so that you're not feeling like you're losing money and that it's fine that like if everybody started using my doctor's service the way the most high intensity people do that would be a problem but the reality is that that's not what happens it, it can't because he's constrained by his patent number of panel of patients. He can only probably caps out at two or 400, whatever it is, and go up to eight or even 1200 uh, with direct primary care. Um, but there's a natural constraint there. So, I mean, it is fewer customers, no doubt about it. It's fewer customers, but they're paying you a higher price. And because you're not focused on piling more services, I mean, I just had my car repaired and it just you, you just feel like they're nickel and diming you. Oh, you need a water pump. Oh, you need gasket. Oh, you need you know. And 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 they have a charge for every little darn thing. They you know. Oh, we had to put the license plate on. So you know, it's like, I'm like, are you kidding me? Stop doing this. Why can't you just say I'll take care of anything you need under this roof? And by the way, what we can do under this roof is continuously expanding. Mm-hmm. These practices constantly, and you probably know this, they constantly, you know, they add diagnostics, they add DNA testing. If you want that, they add uh, analysis, they add uh, pharmacology. Some of them dispense drugs, yep. all of these things, just like Netflix and Amazon give us new content constantly mm-hmm. or new, new value added services. And they don't raise the price every time they do this. It's because it's not tied to a service, right. it's tied to a relationship. And right. we're just here to take care of you. And you know, for the life of me, I don't know why every professional couldn't figure out a way to do this. I'm not saying it's not hard, Jonathan. I yeah. know this, this, this bends people's mind. It's bending my mind. I'm wrestling with this. But the reason I know it's a phenomenal model is because precisely because it scares the hell out of people. Right. And the, and the growth that you see in companies who have figured it out. Absolutely. So, so that brings us into, um, Maybe this is impossible to answer. It's too soon, perhaps. But do you think that there are verticals that can't do this? Interesting. Um, I'm I'm not sure. I I I don't. You know, uh, there's a great book out there, "The Automatic Customer" by John Warlow. Oh, yeah. I know he's written some other books. You might have interviewed. Yeah, I've interviewed him. him yeah. 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 I don't know if you interviewed him on the automatic customer. No. It was built to sell. Selling, yeah, yeah. Um, but in that book, he lays out, I think there's nine subscription models in that book. 
you know, there's obviously the, the, the Wall Street Journal, The Economist, and there's the, you know, all you can eat, Spotify, Netflix, there's the private university club, or, you know, I love my favorite examples, Disney Club, you know, 33, right, in Disneyland, the only place you can buy booze. <laughs> uh, there's the front of the line model where like clear, you know, and, and uh, yep. there's the consumable model where you're subscribing to your razor, your underwear, your socks, whatever. There's mm-hmm. the surprise box. There's the simplifier, which is where he throws Porsche passport. Um, but there's also in the simplifier, this company called hassle-free home services, which is a franchise. And what's exciting to me about this is this company, it's like two seventy five a month or 250, I forget, something like that. And they just take care of your weekend to-do list. Done, sold. Yes. I want this now. I I know. Hassle-free home services. Look it up. It is a national franchise, so there may be locations near you. They'll, they will do your you know, your smoke alarm batteries. They'll they'll fix the door, the broken hinge, what all the crap that's on your to do list, right? Mm-hmm. And here's the thing: if you want them to do a bigger project, like you want a deck or yeah, new roof, know, somebody, garage, so, yeah, somebody ran through your sliding glass door or whatever. You know, <laughs> those things are extra. And but here's the thing: if you're subscribing to this company, who are you going to hire to do these other things? Right. Right. So I could see in, especially maybe in your world, and this is uh, something I haven't spent a lot of time thinking about, but in your world where you might be doing a major installation or major, major programming Mm -hmm. that you would carve out special projects, like some concierge doctors will charge insurance for certain procedures that aren't covered in their membership. Um, Right. Yeah, my doctor doesn't do any procedures. It's all it's all just uh, primary care stuff, and refers me out to specialists for anything mm. like dermatology or whatever. Right. And it's, so that's all that's all normal model. He's just he's just my health advisor, right? So it's not like so. For, I'm, and I'm I am as you're talking, I'm like wrestling this with software developers because the only the only obvious thing that the two two obvious things come to mind. One is support and maintenance contracts which that's a no brainer. Yeah, but it's a terrible business. So it's a very low margin business. I suppose the argument, the counter argument to that is like, well, you're getting the wrong customers. So get customers who value support and maintenance more, charge them more, but not that they actually need more. It's just a higher risk situation for them. And they want to outsource to someone who they, they trust as an expert. Right. And I guess, how could we provide them with more value? Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, yeah. that's, I look at the passport program. I look at this hassle free thing. Um, th- these guys are adding tremendous value and, and it's continuously expanding. I mean, you're constantly delighting the customer with new, just like Amazon. So, oh, now you're a prime member, you get access to this, you know, audible books, magazines, whatever it is. Right. They're constantly adding value. We don't think that way as professional firms. You know, we're 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 call break fix. You know, right. when you need something, you know, I want to move away from that. I want to take care of the relationship and just the person, their financial life, their their legal life, whatever, uh, whatever it might be, and just figure out ways to add more value. Right. Yeah. The, so the other the other model for software developers. It, well, there's two other ones, but one they're not going to like. The the other the support one is common, and you can do that if you orient. I feel like you really need to orient your entire business around just that, though. And doing custom projects is really outside of your wheelhouse. 
if you do orient your entire business around support, maintenance, uptime, that kind of thing, you can do very well, but mm-hmm. it's not, you're not building custom stuff. It's, it's a, right. a big shift. The other thing that you can do is build something like WP Engine where you become a host that is a managed platform. I don't want to say you own your hardware because you almost certainly don't, but you, you sort of own the playing field and the landscape that your customers host their websites on. So you can make sure, you can make promises that other people can't make because you, you created the whole, uh, it's like an apartment building. So they, they create an apartment building and they're renting rooms in the apartment building. If I was going to do a physical metaphor, uh, but they they handle all the centralized maintenance, all that, so that it's still a maintenance type business, but they own the building, so they can make one fix for the entire user base, and they're not running from house to house to house to house to house, cleaning the gutters or whatever needs to right. be done. So that's another model. And then the third one is one I've done for years, but it doesn't involve any software development. It's just software expertise, which is a true advisory retainer model where I'm I'm like the doctor who doesn't perform any procedures. But when someone comes along and they, and they feel like they need a procedure done, I consult with them. I'll either say, no, you don't actually need a procedure at all, or you need a different one than you thought. And here's someone that can do it for you. I trust them. I pre-vetted them. You pay them directly or you deal with them. I'll oversee the procedure and make sure they did a good job. But you're not actually doing any of the procedures. In this case, that would be developing any software. Right. So you're not really doing software development anymore. You're more, you're, you're like a software advocate or advisor. Right. Kind of like the, the true role of a consultant. Yes, right? exactly. I mean, we're all kind of consultants in some area, right? Consulting on tax law or medical, you know, health and, and all of that. And yeah, I think that model obviously has got a lot of legs. And I also think that um, you can carve out certain procedures and, and, you know, charge more fee for that particular service like this hassle-free home does. But with professional firms, I, I'm not sure why you can't do an all-you-can-eat. I, I know that freaks people out, but yeah, I just why wouldn't we? You know, some year, I, I just I think it goes back to the accounting mindset. And this is I blame our profession for this tremendously. <laughs> uh, that we need to make a profit on every interaction, or we need to make a profit on every job or every customer. And this is also what I mean by pricing the portfolio. No, you don't. You need to maximize the profit across the entire portfolio. Right. If you've done a good job pre-qualifying the customer, identifying the customers that you want to take on, using price as a way to, um, you know, keep out the the tire kickers and the low or the underperformers or the low value customers. Uh, if you do all those things, then just like a dentist, why wouldn't you just say, look, you got a problem. We'll take care of it. You need a crown. You need whatever. Just we're here for you. Whatever yeah. we can do. Yeah. I, I mean, it. Yeah, the, especially in the medical space, it, there, there's a there's a argument that crops up in this conversation that is around. Well, what if you can't afford that? And like, there's a there's a one percenter issue here. But if but we're not actually these are examples that we're using. But if you're a software developer, I don't really think you need to worry about ethics of this business model because nobody needs a, a getting a new website is not life or death or their website being up or down is not life or death. And I don't want to distract the whole conversation with arguments about access to medical care and all of that, all of that mess. Right. I mean, it just, just uh, on that point and that uh, I won't go down a rabbit hole, I promise, but um, I just read a book by a doctor, Dr. Paul Thomas, who runs plum 
direct primary care practice out of Detroit, Michigan. Mm -hmm. And so he's serving a very underserved uh, population. And his annual prices are less than you pay for your cell phone. (laughs) And he does everything at cost, including diagnostic tests, imaging, MRIs, CAT scans. He does it all. And he flourishes but he does it by serving an under underserved population that don't have a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Good. You know, it's, it, it's phenomenal. So I, you know, this is the answer to the healthcare issue, but that that's a separate issue. But I just wanted to point out that there, there is a way for this to be part of the solution to the medical issues that we have. And, and there, there is greater demand for direct primary care and concierge doctors than there are supply. The demand out there is overwhelming. People are just fed up with the whole insurance thing. You know, and 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 doctors are fed up with like the electronic medical records. One doctor said, and and this is this is funnier than all get out, but it's it's a sad commentary on where we are. He says, in the last five years, because of these darn EMRs, you know, the uh, uh, electronic medical records, he's I've become a better typist than doctor. I know it's brutal. I've heard the same story. You have a bunch of close friends who are doctors and family members. It's, it's like you would think as a software guy, you'd think EMRs would make everything easier and faster. <laughs> and they, they end up spending the entire night, like after dinner, typing stuff in. Yep. And it's, it's like, okay, that wasn't, no software developer is going to hear that and be like, oh, that's, that's much better. That's great. And, and even during your, your visit with them, they're looking at the screen, not yeah. at you. Yeah. That's, that's not why these got, folks got into medicine. No, agreed. Okay, let's get off the medical thing, and I know we have to wrap up soon. Um, so, what what is an action item that people could like? What to do? Like, what are we supposed to think about? Um, is it just a brainstorming exercise where the, we've got sort of a uh, greenfield situation? It's all the opportunities are there. You just have to be smart and think of them. And you know, like Drucker said, the purpose of a business is to create a customer. Go create one. You know, for this new thing. Like well, what? What are you counseling people to actually take? What actions are you counseling them to take? Right. Because there's, I mean, as with any business model change, I mean, even as, as you know, well, that even moving from hourly billing to value pricing is a business model change. Yeah. And and there are going to be things you are going to have to deal with. And that's overwhelming. Yeah. That's why a lot of people haven't done it, by the way, because it's, it's darn hard work. Mm-hmm. I don't think this is as hard because I think people resonate with this more. When we ask audiences, how many things do you subscribe to? The list is unbelievable. It's usually five or uh, I, one person had like 12 things he subscribed to. <laughs> you know, we're all used to this. So it resonates with people. They can see it. But the, the three ways to, that you can pivot to this, the three adoption models, if you will, is you can, you can do a trial. So you can carve out some of your customers and just offer this maybe to the best ones or a a certain tranche of customer. Maybe it's the high end, maybe it's the people in the middle, maybe it's the low end. It's a trial. It's low risk, but it's low reward. Mm -hmm. I I had one bookkeeper contact me and say, you know, I, I spoke to one customer about this and he loves the idea. So how do I start? I'm like, well, <laughs> it's, it's hard to have a portfolio of one. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's, that's possible in a value pricing model. It's not so much possible in this. So the, the low, the, the trial is low risk, but it's also low reward. And I, it's kind of like being half pregnant and it's, I don't think it's going to get you there. Mm-hmm. That, you know, you can segment this and only offer it to certain customers or, or, or put it in certain services 
or you could create a, a different brand and do it under a different business yeah. name, mm-hmm. right? This is what Ogilvy did with um, Ogilvy uh, Works. I think it's Ogilvy Works where they put all their low value kind of commoditized, you know, point of sale merchandise. The, the execution of the ideas of the Ogilvy Red um, d- does, you know, that's the ideation, the strategy, um, as Bush would say, yeah. um, you know, all of that high end work. Um, but the, um, so there's, you could do that yeah. or you could just do the all in pivot like Adobe did. Yeah. Or, I was going to mention Adobe earlier. I mean, that was widely despised, but I'm sure they're doing a lot better. Uh, well, sales, uh, by 2016, their revenues were from subscriptions were almost $6 billion. Uh, and 78% of that was from subscriptions and it was widely risky and their stock took a huge hit Mm -hmm. teen in his book subscribed has this thing about swallowing the fish, which is a cash flow curve and the timing of doing, you know, moving over from selling, you know, in this case, software in a box to, mm-hmm. you know, moving to monthly, obviously is cash flow hit. And, and if you look at the graph, it's a fish and you have to swallow it. And that's what Adobe did. But I don't think that fish is as big. It's more like a minnow or a goldfish in a professional firm. I mean, even when you move people from hourly to value pricing and put them on like monthly or quarterly payment terms, you're, you might have some cash flow issues in the short run. But after a year, those smooth out and then it actually picks up. Right. Yeah. I don't think the cash flow issue is the hard part with the value switch. It's more like changing your mindset and actually doing a good job of having a value conversation so you have profits and you can survive through that. Right. The problem is like people think they're doing value pricing at first and they're still doing cost plus or time materials like subconsciously because they can't believe that anybody would pay like two or three times what they would have normally quoted. Absolutely. In fact, I just, somebody sent me this article this morning, how to know when fixed fee pricing isn't working. And this guy wrote this ranting article about, oh, we've been taking a bath on this and blah, blah, blah. It was like, well, when you look at the article that he wrote, you know, talking about scope creep, employee burnout, all of this stuff, it's like, I bet you're a crappy pricer. And you just have no business pricing and and stop blaming it on the the tool, you know? Yeah. You're, you're a lousy carpenter. <laughs> of course, of course, it's killing you. Your prices are too low. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, I mean, we get that. But I know full well, I'm on the front lines of trying to help people make this transition. It's not easy. It's very hard. Um, it comes in waves. Like you'll think you get it, but you really didn't. You got better, but you didn't really get it. And it, it happens over time. It takes a good six months of doing proposals regularly to be like, oh, you're serious like really don't think about scope in the sales interview. I'm like, yeah, I'm serious. You don't think about scope in the sales interview at all. They're going to talk about it, but you don't think about it. Right. And they're like, oh, I mean, I know you said that a hundred times to me, but I didn't actually get it until, you know, finally. Until so, they live through one or something, you know, and then they start to understand it. But the great thing about this model, Jonathan, is that it, I hate to say it because I've spent the last 25 years of my life doing this. It kind of blows up the value conversation. It kind of blows up the scope blows up everything because you're just going to do whatever it takes right it has a lot of the same risks though it's like it's not transactional and you need to have a uh, you need to have a big enough user base that you or customer base so that you can spread it out there's there's it's this is not a it's not a no-brainer that's for sure but i do agree with you that that the subscription concept is more familiar to people than having a why conversation or a value conversation and just like it's very foreign to people even though Almost nothing we buy in the world 
is on an hourly basis. So it's it's like everything you buy is probably value priced pretty much. And but it's spread out across, you know, like a Coke at a ballpark versus at a convenience store versus at a right. supermarket. It's all it's all set based on value and like you know, whatever. And we don't even need to get into that. But um the concept of having a, a value conversation is a completely foreign to people who are used to building by the hour. And the idea of spreading the risk out across a big customer base is great. Um, and I know a lot of software developers who are listening to this are super familiar with the concept of a SaaS model, you know, software as a service, but this is kind of service as a service um, right. that you can spread out across uh, a lot of people. It's, it has a lot in common with productized services that I talk about too, but it's, it's not the same thing. It's not. And I think this is where that word relationship comes in because right. it's really that, you know, again, I'm subscribing to Porsche and that's a, that's a big deal. But isn't that what we all want? Don't we want customers for life? Am I wrong? Yeah. Everybody wants the subscription income. That's for sure. They love the idea of monthly recurring revenue. So it, it is more tempting, I think. It's more tangible to imagine. So hopefully that will, that will get people to, you know, look at, their, look at their customers, their current and past customers, and say, what could I offer these people as a group that they would value uh, at, at, at a price that is going to be a nice profit for me and I can start to dip my toes into this. You know, and, and um, I don't know if any of your listeners are, are embedded in maybe larger firms, but there is one advantage of this. If you're in a larger firm is it just, it, it breaks down the silos. There's like in a CPA firm example, there's no, Oh, well the tax group has got higher realizations than the audit group or that, you know, <laughs> it doesn't matter. We're all here to serve the customer. And, it, and, and we talk about breaking down the silos. We talk about more collaboration. This forces it because it right. puts the customer at the center of the business. Mm-hmm. It forces it. So it forces more collaboration internally. If the customer needs something that the tax people can do, I'm going to go get the tax people. <laughs> that, right. That's not the same incentive, even under value pricing, by the way. There's still not a lot of collaboration. Interesting. Yeah, I'm not dealing with it too many. There's probably not a ton of people listening. There's some, but not too many. It's mostly small firms at the most. Right. Right. So that tends not to be as much of a problem. But that is a great point. Yep. And also, just uh, just so you know, too. I mean, even your financial statements look different in a subscription model, and you can see an example of this in in the book Subscribe. But he lays out the you know the traditional income statement versus the subscription economy. And even just looking at that makes you think about the future more because it's looking at, you know, annual recurring revenue. It's more future driven than just, you know, looking backwards with, with traditional, I mean, traditional financial statements are a joke. You know, this is why they say auditors come in and after the war and ban at the wounded, <laughs> they're, they're, they're useless. Uh, uh, I always love having you. <laughs> it's always, always a laugh. That's for sure. Um, well, this is great. I love this. It's a it's a lot to chew on. So where can people go to find out more about you and your thoughts on this subscription revolution? Well, we uh, Ed and I on the soul of enterprise.com, which is my radio show that I do every Friday. We've actually done two shows, part one and part two on the subscription economy that you can find on the archive page. I'm sorry, I didn't note the show numbers, but they're they're relatively recent within the last year. We've also interviewed Team Zoe from uh, Zora, the software company, and talked about his book, Subscribed. And so those would be three shows that I would that I would highly recommend. And also, I would highly recommend the book, Subscribed. 
um, and even the automatic customer, which is a, which is a great book. Um, and if you really want to get into the economics of the transaction costs issue, uh, Michael Munger's book, Tomorrow 3.0, which I think you'd love, Jonathan. It's really excellent. He's an he's a entertaining writer. He's funny. And I think he's nailed what, you, what you're seeing with Amazon, Uber, Airbnb. It's, it's all about transaction costs. Mm, yeah, I can see that. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm going to order all three of these on my Kindle Unlimited <laughs> subscription. You don't own. <laughs> so, I, so I better read them quick before they get rescinded. Um, well, Ron, as always, thanks so much for coming on the show. This has been a real pleasure. Well, thank you, Jonathan. I knew you'd be a guy that would be interested in this because um, this, this, this makes me uncomfortable. I'll, I'll say it, but that's how I know it's a great idea. Exactly. You know, the turtle only makes progress when he sticks out his neck. <laughs> Another good one. <laughs> nice visual. All right. Well, that's it for this time. I'm Jonathan Stark, and you've been listening to Ditching Hourly. Bye. Hey, Jonathan again. The next time someone asks for your hourly rate, I want you to stop what you're doing and go to valuepricingbootcamp.com to sign up for my free value pricing email course. That URL again is valuepricingbootcamp.com. Hope to see you there. Hey, Jonathan again. Do you have questions about how to improve your business? Things like value pricing your work instead of billing for your time, or positioning yourself as the go-to person in your space, or maybe productizing your services so you never have to have another awkward sales call or spend hours writing another custom proposal. Book a one-on-one coaching call with me and get answers to these questions and others in the time it takes you to get ready for work in the morning. Best of all, you're covered by my 100% satisfaction guarantee. If at the end of the call, you don't feel like it was worth it, just say the word and I'll refund your purchase in full. To book your one-on-one coaching call, go to jonathanstark.com slash call, C-A-L-L. That URL again is jonathanstark.com slash call. Hope to see you there.